You're listening to a sermon in our series, Fully Alive, as we go through the book of Colossians. Visit LindworthRoadChurch.com for more. Louise and I emptied our crawl space out recently, and uh, we discovered some old family movies. We thought we had them all, but indeed some remained, and we were happy like archaeologists finding a lost city. Now, the movies were not that ancient, but they were old. They were VHS, which for some of you means absolutely nothing. (laughs) Over time, we've been transferring all of our VH movies into a new format. But these lay hidden under piles of old toys saved for grandkids and old-time magazines, which I once saw as a reference material for future sermons, but they have uh, laid there unused ever since that time. Now, sadly, some of these videos are beyond repair. But a few we watched, including my oldest son's six-year-old cowboy and Indian party. Really a joy because we had just celebrated his 28th birthday and uh, found the videos in time to show them all together for our, our little party. I love those kind of surprises. And excavated memories are such a source of pleasure. But memories are double-edged swords, aren't they, when we think about it? There are some videos that we would like to edit from our lives. There are memories that we would prefer to forget, but we can't. And even though the memories are buried underneath years of living, they remain. I have some videos like that, some scenes that I wish I could edit, that I wish I could alter the outcome of them. I bet you do as well. Max Lucado tells a story that we can all relate to. It's about a Chinese man named Li Fuyan, and he had tried every experiment possible to address these throbbing headaches. Nothing helped. And an x-ray finally revealed the culprit. A rusty four-inch knife blade had been lodged in his skull for four years. In an attack by a robber, he had suffered lacerations on the right side of his jaw. He didn't know the blade had broken off inside of his head. No wonder he suffered so much throbbing pain. Lucado comments, saying, we can't live with foreign objects buried in our bodies. Just memo there for all of you. Are indeed our souls. What would an x-ray of your interior reveal? Regrets over an earlier relationship? Remorse over a poor choice? Shame about the marriage that didn't work? The habit you couldn't quit? The temptation you couldn't resist? The courage you couldn't find? Guilt lies hidden beneath the surface, festering, irritating. Something so deeply embedded that you don't know even the cause. What do we do with pain like that? The condemnation that we feel. For many, our strategy is to deny or to repress or to numb the pain. But if you've been down that road, you have learned that repressing and denying and numbing actually disconnects us from ourselves and from reality. It does not bring wholeness. It does not bring healing. 
But this morning we want to pose the question, what happens if we can bring God into the equation? And this next passage talks about what God can do for the foreign objects that are resting inside your soul. Now, I did my normal study for the passage this week. I was really, really struggling to know which direction to go. And there's so much here in these 15 verses. I ran across a sermon from an unknown but well-regarded UK pastor by the name of Dick Lucas. He's older. I think he's actually passed away at this point. But uh, his sermon on this subject, on this scripture was good for me, and I thought it was good for our body. I'm going to lean into some of his themes here this morning. Some of these are things we've not touched on for quite some time, and I think it's, it'll be helpful, helpful for us. So pray with me, if you would. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask you to open up our eyes and to remove whatever might prevent us this morning, whatever distraction might prevent us from leaning deeply into your word this morning. For, Father, your voice we have come to love and your voice we need in our lives. We bring to you all that we are. Lord, speak into the very areas of our struggle this morning. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Will you stand, please? And as I read the Word of God, it's in Colossians 2, verses 1 through 15. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is God's word. Please take a seat. Very simple outline this morning. I want to spend a little time on the first two questions and then most of my time on this third question. First, what is the victory of Jesus? Secondly, who did he triumph over? And finally, how does that impact me today? So first question, what is the victory of Jesus? Look at verse 15. We'll start from the back and move up. The victory of Jesus has to do with the cross of Jesus. Now, this is upside down according to the world's wisdom. The cross was where criminals went to die a shameful death. The cross was despised. To bring this up to date, no one would think of a firing squad or the electric chair as glorious or victorious. No one gives a victory rally or holds a champagne celebration for a man staring at execution by lethal injection. Yet in the surprising wisdom of God, Jesus' cross is the way to victory. We get a glimpse of that victory in Matthew's telling of the crucifixion. After Jesus gave up his spirit, Matthew writes this. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. No doubt this would have shown up on CNN that night. The temple was the meeting place between God and the worshiper. The most sacred place of the temple was separated by a curtain and could not be entered without the appropriate sacrifice for sin. The curtain being torn from the top symbolized God the Father tearing the curtain himself, having accepted the sacrifice of sin that Jesus presented. Those bursting from the old from their tombs were old. Testament saints, their sins now completely paid for. And though the cross was despised by the world, through it, though it was despised by the world, through it came an amazing victory. Now, in the second question, the victory implies that someone is conquered. And who is conquered? Who did Jesus triumph over by the cross? Well, Paul here is connecting this victory to a very common image in the Roman world. And that's the lead or the head of a Roman army after having secured a victory and walking back into the city proudly with all of those who've been defeated, the enemy, the vanquished foe following him, and all of the spoil. In Paul's picture, Jesus is leading a victory march with a dejected enemy following. But who are the conquered here? One might think that they're sinners, but they're not. They are spiritual powers and authorities. Paul refers to these power and authorities also in verse 8. 
This is very similar language used by Paul in another letter, the book of Ephesians in chapter 6. And there Paul describes an unseen cosmic battle where he identifies spiritual foes as rulers, authorities, powers of the dark world, and forces of evil in the heavenly realms. These are spirit beings. They're demons, are unholy angels. The Bible teaches that they are fallen from God and they work against the purposes of God. They were unseen. Now, in the ancient world, the spirit world was not questioned. It was assumed and believed to hold tremendous power over life and death. And this produced fear. And it led to practices that the Bible condemns, such as witchcraft and magic and curses. There are many examples of this in the New Testament where the gospel confronted these human attempts to manipulate evil spirits. Now, you might think this sort of hocus-pocus has gone away, but it's not. You can find this kind of folk religion all over the world where people are enslaved to the fear of spirits that are more powerful than they. To avoid hurt or danger, they seek out holy men, or they purchase these holy trinkets called amulets that are thought to ward off evil spirits. It leads to bizarre practices. For example, a wife who is a husband travels a lot, who she's worried about, she might concoct a love potion, a a tea made with her own urine in order to keep her husband faithful. You might think about that, guys, next time your wife prepares some tea for you. This, by the way, I'm not making that up, by the way. That's a true, true story. Or you might purchase an amulet to protect you from the evil eye of a jealous neighbor. We also see it today in nature worship or ancestor worship. Given the context of this passage, it seems this kind of folk religion and spirit fear was at work in Colossae. They needed assurance that Jesus was greater and that the spirit world could do nothing without his permission. Okay, so that's great, you say. But the inevitable question is, so how does that really affect my world? How does that apply to you and to me? Well, Lucas suggests two different things. One, don't be skeptical. And two, don't be scared. And let me explain what I mean. First, don't be skeptical. We, for our part here in the West, don't take evil seriously enough. We tend to deny or to minimize the existence of evil, though every generation has its wake-up call, doesn't it? For our grandparents... Its wake-up call came in the form of Hitler and the Holocaust. For our, our parents, it came in the threat of atomic war. And we have our own wake-up call today in the various forms of genocide and ISIS. The kind of widespread evil that we see in Hitler or that we see in ISIS has to press us to wonder about its source. Could this evil flow 
from merely a human heart? Or is there something else more terrible and dark at work here? And, and, if we call ISIS evil, for example, if we accept the idea that there is true evil, not merely making up that term if we want to call something that we don't like or just giving it a mere human definition. But if we believe there is evil in the world, that it's not just an illusion. If we believe there is real categorical evil, meaning something is evil in and of itself, not just because we want to call it that, something that is inherently wrong, where did it come from? If we work logically backwards, we only have two inescapable choices to answer that question. One, either God is terrible and evil, or there is a secondary being created by God, yet is in direct opposition to God and everything good. Logically, there are not any other options. Every religion, every worldview must confront this. Well, the Bible teaches the second option. There is a created being, a powerful angel, yet defiant, fallen, whose name is Satan. Now, in cultures embracing of the spiritual world and unseen spirits, who take evil seriously, like in Colossae or in places around the modern world today, Satan works openly. He has no need to disguise himself. But what about our world? What about our, our culture? How does it impact us? Here in the West, we're fairly skeptical about Satan and demons and a spirit world. We love it in our movies, in our video game, and our works of fiction. But that is largely how we see it, as entertainment, as something not real, not something to worry about. All this stuff is make-believe, part of our pre-scientific world, and so we dismiss it as nonsense. Is it possible that Satan has us exactly where he wants us to be? Is it possible he has us exactly where he wants us, not believing in him? How does Satan work in a materialist culture like ours that dismisses belief in the supernatural? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at verse 13. Here's a scripture that bears much relevance for us today. Satan worked openly in Colossae. That's why they were so afraid. And that's why defeating powers and authorities by the cross was significant to them. But here in the West, we're far more skeptical. And so Satan works differently. Here's a part of how he works, starting in verse 11. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 
So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. In a skeptical world, Satan flies below the radar. He disguises himself, and he does so particularly through false teachers. These are teachers who talk about Jesus. They use the same language of church and Holy Spirit and resurrection, but they have emptied those words of all of their original meaning. They hang a shingle out that says church, but their message barely resembles the words of Jesus. They appear as angels of light. They are in our churches. They claim to be defenders of the gospel. They claim to have found the real Jesus. They claim to have modernized him to make him less offensive. And their transformation of him has been shortly or has been nothing short of stunning. The new Jesus snugly, snugly fits into and affirms our liberal, upper class, post gender, post modern, post capitalist world, one in which there is full sexual freedom. It's amazing. You see, in splitting from the historical record, what we are left with is a choose-your-own-Jesus. And thus you can conveniently screen out all of the uncomfortable and focus on the Christ you find most likable. Ross Douthat, a New York Times uh, writer and author of Bad Religion, summed up in a Dan Brown-esque way all of this for us, saying this, On one hand, you have the American public, disillusioned with traditional Christianity, but still religious enough to be eager for alternative portrayals of Jesus. On the other hand, you have a host of scholars, journalists, novices, and provocateurs eager to supply them, even to the point of fantasy, even to the point of folly. Satan masquerades in disguise as an angel of light. It's scary. It is. And we must be on our guard for this. And so this is the first point in how this all affects us. Is first, don't be skeptical. Don't be lulled into dismissing his reality. But secondly, don't be scared. Satan has been disarmed. Jesus Christ has won the victory over him. How? Look back at verse 14 in your text. Look back at verse 14. How did he do this? How did he win the victory and disarm Satan? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What is this record of debt that stands against us. Well, as Paul details this more in Ephesians, we recognize that Satan has leverage over us. Before Jesus died for us, Satan possessed a legitimate claim on you. Why? Because you followed his same course. You committed the same sin that he did, the sin of pride. The sin of saying, 
I'm the center of the universe. I get to make up the rules. Making ourselves mini-gods. Making ourselves arbitrators of our own morality. This is the same sin that Satan fell into. And we follow that course. We walked in the course of this world. And we deserve God's judgment. It is as if we are unknowingly asleep in his arms. The arms of Satan. And he has every right to drag you and me into hell. The legal, the, the legal demands of the law stood against you. Now, the legal demands were part of the Old Testament law called the Torah. One commentator wrote this, saying, The idea of Torah, the law of God, as a certificate of debt, should not surprise those familiar with Paul's writings. Elsewhere, Paul states that through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And in this sense, law brings wrath. Although the law is holy, it testifies to one's failure to fulfill God's will. It can therefore be considered a record of debt. And it testifies against us. In this sense, the record is against us. This is our situation without Christ. These legal demands are the summary of all of the sins that we've committed. The true record of our heart. And we stand before a holy judge who can condemn us. A sentence to be held out. A sentence to be held out before us of eternal separation. Now in the days of Jesus, this is very interesting, in the days of Jesus... The actual charge, when one was crucified, the actual charge against that person was written on a certificate and nailed to the cross. That way, every passerby could, go, could walk by and recognize, okay, I don't want to be crucified, and there's the charge, so I better avoid that. But what did God do? Jesus took that certificate of legal debt against you the source of your condemnation, and nailed it to the cross with Jesus. The cross seemed like a defeat, but it was a victory for God. Securing a just way, a just way to forgive you. Satan's accusations no longer held up because a price has been paid. He now has no claim on your life. Satan cannot accuse God of being unjust. And therefore, the result for you is that you are no longer under condemnation. Paul says in Romans 8.1, Jesus said, No one can snatch you from the Father's hand. Nothing can separate you from His love. Your position before God is secure and immovable. This is not a perfect illustration, but reveals a little bit of these dynamics, this little story. It's a great little story about a little boy who has killed his grandmother's pet duck. Doesn't sound too great, does it? If you're a duck, duck fan. He accidentally hit the duck with a rot from his slingshot. Now, the boy didn't think that anybody saw the foul deed. So, sorry. So... so so he, so, so he buried the duck in the backyard and didn't tell a soul. Later, the boy found out, though, that his sister had seen it all. Hmm. 
And she now had the leverage of his secret and used it. Whenever it was her turn to wash the dishes, take out the garbage, or wash the car, she would whisper in his ear, remember the duck. And then the little boy would do whatever she asked. Now, there was always a limit to that sort of thing. And the boy finally got fed up with it and went to his grandmother and with great fear confessed what he had done. To his surprise, she hugged him and thanked him, saying, I was standing at the kitchen sink and saw the whole thing. I forgave you then. I was just wondering when you were going to get tired of your sister's blackmail and come to me. You know, if you've never came, come to Christ, God's wondering the same thing. When are you going to get tired of Satan's blackmail and come to Christ? The victory Christ won is what ignites Paul's prayers earlier. That the Colossians may have a, the riches of a full assurance of where they now stand with God. This is so important for you to understand Paul reminds them that they've been made fully alive. This is the theme of our series, fully alive. He's made them fully alive in Christ. Everything belonging to Christ now belongs to you. It's like marriage. When I married Louise, I became co-owner of a Ford Fairmont, the baby bird we called it. And she became owner of an ugly Mazda GLC, which later would be totaled in an accident. I became co-owner of her student loan. She became co-owner of mine. When God made us alive through Christ, all that is Christ becomes ours. His mercy, His righteousness, even His glory and His status, His sonship before the Father becomes ours. So important for you to understand. But again, look at verse 14. Look at verse 14. There's one more little twist we've got to get here before we leave this passage. Notice that Jesus says, or the word says, Paul says that Jesus disarmed Satan. But he did not defeat him yet. Yes, he dealt him a fatal blow. But there's still a fight. Even after we are born anew. If Satan cannot take you to hell, then his next strategy is to make you unfit for service. We're in a fight. Jesus experienced it. In that great passage of Matthew 16, when Peter makes the grand confession, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And then Jesus, the next uh, statement is that, yes, the Son of Man must go and must suffer and must die. And Peter said, that can't happen. Surely, Lord, that's not going to happen to you. Peter couldn't reconcile the Messiah's suffering in such a way. Do you remember what Jesus said back to him? Every word's important. This is his closest friend, his most intimate disciple. He says to him, get behind me, Satan, for your interests are not God's but man's. Jesus recognized this was a temptation. This was a fight coming through his best friend. We're in a fight. Imagine the owner of a home bound by an intruder who ransacks your, you know, a house. But the owner of this house has a dog named Lassie. Again, some of you don't know who Lassie is, but it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, like a great dog. 
And last, he comes in and loosens the knot and sets the owner free. He's free, right? But what? He still has a fight. We are free, but we still have a fight. Satan cannot change your position for God, but he can make you unfit for service. He can shake you from your confidence that you are no longer condemned. He can shake you from your confidence that you are no longer condemned. And he has three ways of doing it. Three tactics to do it. To bring you back into condemnation. Here's the first one. Sin. He will never cease to attack you in this way. There will never come a point in your life when temptations will cease. Until we get to the end. His goal is to spoil your life from within because we all know it, right? Sin makes us miserable and often drives us to self-loathing and self-condemnation. We often talk about other causes and factors when people do self-destructive things and sin, but please do not eliminate the idea that Satan is intent on this strategy to sideline you. Now, there are a lot of strategies in dealing with temptation. But what emerges from this passage is, the, is a first principle. To never forget the assurance you have from God and that nothing will separate you from His love. For every glance you take at your own sin, take ten glances at the cross. And the victory won for you there. Secondly, verse 10 says that you've been filled with Him. Being filled with Him will make the empty and hollow seem far less attractive. When looking at a particularly compelling or juicy temptation, here's what we're apt to say. We're apt to say, I want that, but I can't have it. So I will just have to live with second best or something else. That is so backwards. That is so backwards. While it is true that we might deny ourselves of a passing or momentary pleasure, God, our Savior, is the source of full life. Our temptations are both an opportunity to resist Satan and to reset our beliefs about the true source of happiness. Satan cannot take away your salvation, but he can take away the joy of your salvation. He can take away your friendship with God. He can prevent you from connecting to your local church where so much life and His Word comes. That'll be His goal. That'll be His strategy if He can't drag you into hell. Here's a second tactic. And let me explain this. First is sin, but a second tactic is suffering. I heard a man tell a gripping story on NPR this week. Unfortunately and sadly and truly, his son had been murdered. And this man assumed that the murder was a connection to his former life. That the murder of his son was a punishment. That God was condemning him because of his previous and former gang involvement. Now really, isn't that a very easy thing to do when hard things happen to us? We wonder, is it our fault? Did I not pray enough? Is God upset with me? And then there's, unfortunately, misinformed Christians like Peter that reject the idea that suffering is compatible with following Jesus. And they 
add to our sense of condemnation by suggesting if you only had more faith, you would be healed or this wouldn't have happened to you. Like Peter, this can often be the work of Satan. Accusing, bringing condemnation. You see, God never did love you. He was always against you. This is what you deserved. Satan's goal is to disconnect us from God, to get us to question God's love for us. You know, suffering can be one of the great avenues for God growing and maturing us and preparing us for ministry. But Satan, on the other hand, will fight to bring condemnation and shame to your life and try to sideline us when suffering hits. Here's the third thing. If you look back in verse 6 and 7, and and then you'll see this at the end of chapter 2 as well, there was false teaching in Colossae. There were these superior brothers, superior teachers that had come in that were making Paul so anxious that in verse 1 he would contend or struggle or pray with anxiety for the Colossians. And the interesting thing about false teachers or superior brothers There's always one underlying consistent thing that's true, whatever shade of deception it takes. And that's simply this. Jesus is not enough. You do not have a full gospel. You need this experience. You need this special insight, this new program, this teacher. The undertone of this is always the same. It's very elitist. Only a select few have the special knowledge. Only we who see this insight that nobody else has ever discovered. And yes, you too can have it for only $29.95. These superior brothers can bring a condemnation, an inferiority. When you've not had the special experience, when you've not received the heavenly vision. The false apostles took away the fact that ordinary leaders can experience Jesus in very real and concrete ways. That ordinary individuals can become leaders in Christ's church. The gospel is for ordinary believers. It's not some Gnostic secret. It's open to all. When it says hidden there in verse 3, it does not mean private only for a few, but refers to the fact that the treasures are being stored up as if it's hidden away for you. Any program, any teaching that does not bring us into a more simple devotion to Jesus should be questioned. Paul says as much as this in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3. Look at this. Look at this verse. But I'm afraid that as a serpent is deceived by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So what have we said this morning? We've looked at the victory that Christ has won. We looked at who he defeated. And then in light of that, we said, in regards to Satan, don't be skeptical, but neither be scared. And then we've urged you to stand firm in your freedom and in your forgiveness. 
and resist his efforts to bring self-condemnation through sin, suffering, and superior brothers in your life. Let me finish with a story. It's from a pastor. It's not me. Somebody else, but I think will help us bring us to a close. This pastor wrote this. Early in my ministry, I counseled a woman who, some 20 years before, had been unfaithful to her husband. For years, that sin haunted her. I was the first person she ever told about it. After we talked and prayed for a long time, I recommended she tell her husband. That, by the way, she says, isn't always the advice he gives. But in this case, he thought it was right. It wasn't easy for her, but she promised she would tell him. Pastor, she said, I trust you enough to do what you ask. But if my marriage falls apart as a result, I want you to know I'm going to blame you. And he writes, she didn't smile when she said that either. That's when I commenced to pray with a high degree of seriousness. <laughs> he says, I, write, I pray best when I'm scared. I relate to that. Father, I prayed if I gave her dumb advice, forgive me and clean up my mess. I saw her the next day, and she looked 15 years younger. What happened? I asked. When I told him, she exclaimed. He replied that he had known about the incident for 20 years and was just waiting for me to tell him so he could tell me how much he loved me. And then she started to laugh. He forgave me 20 years ago. And I've been needlessly carrying all this guilt for all these years. Perhaps you're like this woman. You've already been forgiven years ago, but you don't know God's forgiveness. Indeed, there's a four-inch rusty knife sitting in your soul that God is saying to you this morning, give that up. Give that up. Give that up. God made you fully alive in Christ. You already have every spiritual blessing in Him. Let that truth transform you. Father in heaven, thank you for our moments together here this morning. Thank you for our moments together. And I pray, Father, for my friends that every one of them could grasp the height and the depth and the width of your amazing love for us. And together we'd be inspired freshly to resist the one, to fight against the one who seeks to rob us of what you've given us, who seeks to make us unfit for service. Father, in Jesus' name, empower us to resist him in a new way today, first believing what you've done for us through Christ. We offer to you, Lord, our hearts first, and secondly, our resources. Lord, use these gifts now that we give to spread this good news all over the world through the power of your gospel. And Father, let us not be ashamed of so powerful a message that we believe this morning. Through Christ we pray. Amen.
We're going to worship here in response to the victory that Christ has won for us. We'll take our offering during this first uh, song. If you filled out that Connect card, just drop it in the basket. But I want you to pay attention particularly to the second, second stanza of this song and let it sink deep and then sing and dance and cry. Let it sink to a place in your heart where it begins to stir you, connects to you emotionally. Don't leave this time without feeling the embrace of God and hearing his voice.